And the more we connect to our own self, the more we connect, better connect more intimately and deeply with other people. And then it ricochets back to help us connect more deeply with ourselves. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we're going to talk about how to reconnect with ourselves with therapist Hillary Jacobs Hindle. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. So right now we are in a series called For the Love of Reconnecting. We could not think of a more important way to start the year out. We've just been in every way disconnected from each other, from our neighbors and loved ones, from our fellow countrymen, from ourselves. And we thought, what can we do? What tools can we put in the hands of our listeners to begin the really important work of reconnecting? So if you are like me, you're probably feeling a swirl of at least maybe 17 different emotions right now that have been bubbling up inside of you since at least March of 2020, right? Anxiety, anger, stress from being stretched too thin, loneliness from missing family and friends, grief from all of our canceled plans or goals or losses, maybe even fear, thinking about a future that we can no longer predict. We've just had months and months and months of everything being too much. And when you're not sure when the too much is going to end, it can feel like the only way out of it is to check out. Just goodbye feelings. Goodbye. I get that feeling completely. And we can absolutely do do that. That is an option. But like our wise friend Brene says, when you shut out the bad, that means you also shut out the good good things like joy and connection. And right now we need joy and connection. So what do we do? How do we connect or reconnect with our emotions in a healthy way that we can actually deal with on a daily basis? Let me introduce you to my next guest because she's going to help us with all of this. Hillary Jacobs Hindle is a psycho analyst and a psychotherapist. She's published articles in the New York Times, tons of professional journals. Fun fact, Hillary also consulted on the psychological development of the characters on Mad Men. Cool. She's the author of a brilliant book called It's Not Always Depression, Working the Change Triangle to Listen to the Body, Discover Core Emotions, and Connect to Your Authentic Self. We're going to unpack all of that over the course of this conversation, because as we are thinking about how to reconnect with ourselves and our emotions in a healthy, doable way, I'm telling you, she has a fantastic tool to start the engine for us. Lots in here, you guys today, lots and lots and lots packed into this one conversation. And as always, remember, we will have it all over at jenhatmaker.com underneath the podcast tab, the show notes, and all the links to every single thing we're going to talk about. So I am very pleased to share my conversation with the super smart, very brilliant Hillary Jacobs Hindle. Okay, Hillary, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I was just telling you before we started recording that we found you and your work and said, we just have to see if there's a way that we can get her into this series. So thank you for saying yes. Oh, thank you for having me. I've told my listeners a little bit already about who you are and what you do, but we'd like to hear more in your own words from your mouth, what you do for a living and why, what matters most to you and kind of how you've gotten here. And if you wanted to talk a little bit about your work on Mad Men, none of us are going to be mad about it. <laughs> We're all up to hearing a little bit of the dish on your really fun experience on that show. So in a nutshell, I'm a regular gal from New York City that was always kind of psychologically oriented, but took me a while to find my stride after several different careers that, you know, went belly up. Uh, either I didn't like them or uh, I wasn't good at them. I, at the age of 39, decided I wanted to be a psychotherapist. It's a second career for, for many people, a lot of artists, a lot of people that just want a second chance to do something else. I knew a lot about psychology and was always interested in that because my dad was a psychiatrist and my mother was a guidance counselor and 
But simultaneous to that, there was just me as a person in the world that didn't have a lot of understanding, I guess, of the deeper aspects of myself with regard to emotions. I went back for a master's in social work and wanted to go into private practice. And in New York City, kind of the the mainstream ways to get trained are through psychoanalysis and through CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, that are still kind of mainstream ways of working. And then I had this, just by dumb luck, a friend of mine had recommended that I would be interested in this woman, Diana Fosha, who was developing this psychotherapy method that had to do with quicker transformation, like how to help people faster, and that had to do with emotions. We didn't talk a lot about emotions per se in my family. And in school, we talked, people talked about depression, people talked about anxiety as if it was the end of a story. So you end up anxious, you end up depressed, and you treat it with medication or you treat it with some psychotherapy, but it was sort of an entity unto itself. And when I went to this conference to hear this woman, Diana Fosha, and there were other speakers there like Dan Siegel, who's relatively famous, who writes about brain integration, and several other people, it was really a focus in emotions and and looking at people through a trauma lens, not in the, again, the conventional idea that a trauma is a major catastrophic event, but that we become individually and collectively traumatized by very small, frequent relational interactions, especially as children, where where our emotions and our core authentic self is not received in a positive light. We all know, you know, people don't go around really talking that honestly about how they feel. And and the culture I would describe as rather emotion phobic. When I received this information, my mental health improved that day. I was really transformed by this understanding, first and foremost, that you couldn't control emotions so that you shouldn't feel that you're weak if you have emotions and that emotions were something to be leaned into that were in the body and that when we listen to them and move them through us in these ways that I write about, that we become less anxious and less depressed, more in touch with our true self, and then we can find skilled and creative ways to express ourselves to get these needs met in relationships and for ourselves. I love this approach. It feels like going with the grain of how we are wired, how we are made to respond and function instead of constantly pushing against the grain. I love a good truth bomb. And you wrote something very simple, but profound that I keep thinking about. You said, wellness is a byproduct of our ability to tolerate our internal experiences. That makes me just want to sit and think, think about that and think about that and think about that. Can you talk more about what that means? Yeah. And actually, you know, as I'm sharing, all of us can just take a moment even to slow down and feel our feet on the floor and maybe take a breath and scan our body from head to toe. And if we can slow down, and approach ourselves with a kind of curiosity and compassion, right, without judging anything that we find, we would begin to notice all sorts of sensations inside that because we're always so moving so fast in our society or distracting ourselves, we never get a chance to tend to. And in fact, when I was learning this method, which is about dipping into the body, I remember I was in a workshop and the prompt was, you know, what were we experiencing in the moment? And I remember saying, well, I was kind of anxious in the workshop and about doing experiential exercises and learning something new. And the person pretending to be the therapist, that's how we sort of train, gave me the prompt to where did I feel that anxiety in my body? And that was a revelation. And then the second thing was, because I said in my chest, could I tune into that? Could I lean in and notice that anxiety in my chest? And that was such an epiphany and so terrifying because usually I would go up into my head at that point sure, and move away from it. And I just trusted. And I remember 
tuning in, just noticing the sensations in my chest and staying with it. And sure enough, my anxiety went down instead of up, which was what I would have feared that if I had tuned into my body, it would amplify and I'd feel out of control and maybe get panicky. And it was a counterintuitive experience. Hmm. Embodiment, it is a revelation for a lot of us. It's just not the way we were raised. It was not language that we were traditionally handed. I considered my body my my enemy for a long time, Um, that it was trying to betray me when in fact, it was just sending me signals, giving me really important information about my environment and protecting me, protecting me. I sat on my porch, honestly, Hillary, a few months ago, because my body had been sending me some really important warning signals that I ignored. And I like wrapped my arms around my own body. And I said, I am so sorry. Like you were just trying to protect me and speak to me and show me something that was happening that I was unwilling to see with my eyes. And so I love to hear the experts talk about getting back in our body and letting that be a credible source of input and information to our experiences. Yeah. And it really is. It's so true that for so long, and and this is a book in the making about the history of thought on emotion. It makes sense that, you know, when we were out foraging for food and shelter, that you had to stuff your emotions and just one, you know, forge ahead so that people could survive. And two, that uh, emotions people equated with violence. And it's true that we have anger brings up aggressive impulses. But it, again, it's paradoxical that when we can learn to be with them without acting out the impulse, then we learn to use our anger constructively. Like you said, when your body was telling you about these ways that it's trying to protect us, tell us something isn't wrong, isn't right with the environment, or tell us something is good. That's the way we know what is dangerous and what is safe is all these cues that happen out of conscious awareness that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, which makes perfect sense that we have to react quickly for survival purposes. I just also have to say that I love that. I call that a selfie hug when you wrap your arms around yourself. It's such an important part of soothing. And It is soothing. I learned it from another therapist who said, just especially during COVID when we're so cut off from a lot of our physical touch, we're accustomed to receiving from other people that our minds can interpret it in almost a similar, exact similar pathway if we just love our own selves, like give our own selves a hug. It gives our brains the same comfort. And so speaking of science, a really good way to strip the fear and mystery surrounding emotions is to really examine the science behind them. Because in the moment when we are feeling the feelings, it can be hard to remember, or maybe we just never even knew that there may be some kind of biological response going on. And you just started talking about that. Can you talk a little about the science behind emotions, why we have biologically evolved to have them, what they do for us and why they're such a big part of our lives? Yes, I can. I'm so glad you raised that because I think part of the way that I got personally sort of tainted against emotions was from my father, the psychiatrist, how ironic that emotions were considered like these sort of new age, you know, the whole mind body thing my father would scoff at and emotions were unscientific and soft science, just something to sort of be, you know, risen above that that is sort of how we are evolved. And then what happened is With the invention of the MRI machine in the 70s, we were able to image healthy brains ethically because it didn't put radiation like traditional x-rays, like CAT scans. And so once you can begin to image healthy brains, you can begin to figure out what's happening in the brain and the body with much more precision. And what we now know is that emotions are triggered as a response to the environment, again, as an evolutionary advantage, that the purpose of an emotion is to make us react very, very quickly, with the idea being that if there is a threat before we can even assess it consciously, that on an implicit, unconscious basis, we can see, like an um, we can hear an ominous 
tone of voice. We can see movement in the shadows. We were picking up our environment with our five senses. And if it was to go into our thinking brain, which happens a bit slower, it would be a disadvantage. So mammals evolved to be able to have these quick emotional reactions. When we react emotionally, and uh, listeners out there, you know that all of a sudden, you know, you're having an interaction, let's say, with, with your partner or your friend, and they say the wrong thing. And you shift from being kind of your best self, you know, your engaged, socially engaged self to a complete shift in state where you might feel ashamed and start feeling like you're getting smaller or you start to get pissed off and angry. And these things happen. The way they actually happen is we receive something in the middle of the brain and it triggers the lower brain and then the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that's the largest nerve in the body. And it virtually affects every organ in the body to ready us for an action. Meaning if we feel attacked and it raises our flight, our fleeing response, then the vagus nerve is going to make sure that blood is diverted to our heart and our lungs and away from our GI tract. It's going to make sure that our blood vessels open so that our we have blood going to our leg muscles and we can run. So all these things going on behind the scenes are happening so that we can react fast. And emotion is the conduit to that. And it's only after all those physiological reactions have taken place that our big thinking brains can kind of reflect Right? We have a part of the brain that picks up what's happening in inside us and says, okay, I just got scared, something happened, and then we can assess for danger. Yeah. Uh, I learned that a few months ago in my book club, we read a book called Burnout by Emily Nagoski and her sister, Amelia. Oh, I love Emily. I know. <laughs> it's, it's This is her kind of genre here that you're discussing. And she talked about how, you know, that was exactly the case. That's our body. That's our stress response to protect us. But that the way to move through it is then physical because it, it, it did something physical in our body to ready us for a response. And so physical movement in some way will move it through and you can complete that stress cycle, which just makes sense. Otherwise it's just still in there. And we didn't, run away from the predator or whatever our bodies were, you know, preparing to do. And we need some sort of physical release. The mind-body connection is so powerful and so profound. I feel like we could talk about it for a hundred hours. Have you ever stopped to think about where your stuff comes from? Like who made it and were they paid what they should have been paid right now? I am looking to be more intentional with the things I buy. Plus I'm always looking for ways to support local communities. And one retailer that's helping me do that is American Giant. American Giant is the best, you guys. They're a clothing retailer, and they've built a 100% USA-based supply chain, which means every piece of clothing was made right here in the U.S. They focus on making really high-quality products that were manufactured in facilities that are committed to ethical working conditions, and wages. And that really matters to me. And listen, these clothes do good for the people in our communities, but they also look and feel good too. So far, I've gotten an American Giant t-shirt and hoodie, and I'm living my life in these clothes. They are both a part of my uniform. They are so soft and so comfortable, and they fit perfectly. And, which I love, wash after wash after wash, they continue to look brand new. So, you can get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code for the love at American-Giant.com. It's a pretty good deal. So, one more time, get 15% off when you use the code for the love at American-Giant.com. Okay, back to our show. I want to go back and see if you can expand on something you said a minute ago, because sometimes we might have an enormous response to something that happens, like so outsized that it doesn't seem to quite match what the situation called for. And that feels confusing. Like what just happened? How did I just completely lose it over that? Like, how did I just slip that far, like down the slope? And so of course, therapists are always pointing back to our childhood and our past 
because there's a real predictability there. So can you talk a little bit further about how our early experiences shape our brains? And then maybe even more importantly, in what ways can we begin to move past those patterns of behavior that have such deep grooves in our brains? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Kind of a nice metaphor for it is, is a tree, is the way that I think of it with these roots and a big trunk. So if you think about our childhood experience, so we're born, right? And we, we have a genetic disposition and a propensity that kind of is our unique, authentic self. And then we have experiences, right? From the moment we're born, like the first experience, does our mother put us at the breast and look at us with like the most loving gazing eyes that you've ever seen? Or is our mom anxious, right? And that's an experience for better, for worse, for whatever happens after that is going to register and it's going to create wiring. It's going to create neural networks to start to put together what we're seeing and what we're feeling and memories. And so you can think of it as the early childhood experiences, because they are the ones that are first and repeated, they, they're wired the most. So let's say, for an example, we're born into a lovely family. I believe parents mean well and they want to do right by their children, but parents have their own, I was going to say trauma histories, but without sort of, and again, what I mean by that is the things that didn't go as smoothly. And so they had their own kind of, I don't want to say flaws, but foibles, ways that they, they're triggers. And so in combination with that and that parents don't also get any emotion education. They don't get a manual on how to raise kids. And we know that there are certain things that can happen in childhood that make for a more confident and a calmer experience and adult. And it has to do with feeling safe. Basic safety is the most important thing. Being seen, having one's emotions, being attuned to and reflected back. And I want to make one distinction as I've talked about emotions. It's became more and more clear that people often confuse permission to have emotions with permission to behave badly, to wear your emotions on your sleeve, to cry, to manipulate, to be mean, to do all these things. And I want to make a distinction that learning to be with our emotions is a completely internal experience And then we bring on our thinking brain at the very last step after we understand what's happening to us as adults, not as children. And that's where we decide logically and consciously based on common sense, based on our goals, how we want to behave. So I want to separate behavior from the experience of our emotions in our Mm. mind and body. Yeah, that's a huge distinction. Wildly important. Wildly important. I'm wondering if sometimes we act out of our emotion because we're so judgmental about what we are finding on the inside. I know a lot of us tell ourselves that we're not supposed to feel, supposed to feel angry or sad or disgusted or afraid because that would mean to us, well, we've done something wrong or our relationships are wrong or we're bad. But when we have those moments when we're judging what we're feeling how do we begin to let that judgment go? Because you're right, that judgment can turn into shame, which can turn into like kind of bad behavior, which is not a healthy response to emotions. So how would you suggest that we begin to invite self-compassion in for ourselves and feel our feelings without judging them as being bad, wrong, or even worse, casting the whole mechanism as bad, wrong, terrible? Yeah, well, what I suggest is what what changed everything for me, which is the basic education that, for example, emotions just are. Once I learned that I was I couldn't control my emotions because they were getting triggered in a part of the brain that I could only control after I had them. So we can't stop emotions from happening, but we can stop the way we behave. It's that distinction of behavior. 
that hopefully will give everybody listening the and everyone who gets this information the ammunition to say it makes no sense to judge our emotions or to judge other people's emotions. Just if I like was to share that this is my experience that right now I feel disgusted by something or I feel anxious about something or I feel nervous or I feel disconnected from you or or something like that. I can, you know, ideally people start to relate where they can hear that and not be threatened not judge the other person and the person having the experience can say, look, and you don't have to share. We don't have to share how we feel, but ultimately in close relationships, it really does help, even though it may be hard in the beginning. But once you sort of give yourself permission, I'm not going to judge this emotion. I'm actually just going to be curious about it. And even if I'm having an emotion that I was raised to think was bad. I'm going to go back to anger because particularly women think it's not nice to be angry. Actually, I would say all the men that I work with too, people really struggle with anger. And if you just say, okay, anger just is, and you really just decide, I'm going to try not judging it and see what happens if I am compassionate to myself because it doesn't feel comfortable in my body to be angry. And it doesn't feel good to be angry at somebody that we want to be connected to. That fuels the compassion, just the the knowledge that it's painful or uncomfortable. Then we can say, well, how can I make good use of this emotion? And we're just turning the whole thing on its side. And sometimes that will be, to get back to your question before, I'm sure everyone can relate. We have these in relationships, whether with friends or coworkers or bosses or, or primary partnerships, you know, the feeling where we've had this fight again and again, or I've had this trigger again and again. And when you have the same thing again and again, you can be sure that it's dovetailing on the past because what the actual infraction may be different from week to week, month to month, person to person, but it's triggering something that is lighting up a branch of that tree in our brain that's going probably way back. And in sessions with patients, you might have mentioned in the the beginning, I'm a psychotherapist and I work with childhood trauma. And I consider everybody traumatized from their childhood by definition because we had to survive it. And we're different than our parents and we're different than our siblings and just being unique like with any partnership, it's we have to negotiate differing needs and people do judge each other for being different and all these terrible sort of stigmatizing things that our society does to us. With patients, when they talk about a feeling that they had that came up in a particular instance, because I'm always asking for specificity, tell me, give me an example of this, this problem that you're sharing. And if it's about a feeling, which it always is, I'll say, is this is this a brand new feeling that you've never had before or is this familiar that you've had before? And most of the time people say they've had it before. And then my next question is, you know, what's this feeling feel like in your body? Can we just put some language, some sensation words or metaphors, something to bring it out? That's helping somebody like tune into it in a kind of safe way. And then we're really trying to light up these neural networks, like these branches of a tree, like a Christmas tree. And once it's kind of very vivid, then my last question is, as you stay with this feeling and you bridge back in time, back into your 20s, back into your teens, back into your childhood, when is the first time you remember having this feeling? And that's what brings us back to the place that we probably need to do some healing work with a young part in a memory where either they were shut down in a moment of exuberance or humiliated for some aspect of themselves or just something, these moments that stay with us forever. Totally. They do. It's so, so true. I mean, I'm in my forties and I can just that quickly pull up some of those memories. It's just like they happened yesterday. You just touched on this earlier, but One of your biggest mantras is to slow down. You mentioned it earlier. I have tried to embrace this. I think for most women who are, which is all of us, juggling career and family and friends and even just suffering around us. Plus now, you know, we're being told on the regular to take time for self-care and even self-improvement is another big, you know, stream of thought out there. 
so sometimes on the, the idea on slowing down, it's conceptually manageable in our heads, but it seems to be at odds with our schedules. It seems to be at odds with our actual lives. So can you help us know what you mean by slow down and where, and then specifically how we can do it? Being raised in New York City and being a completely type A type of person, I am fast. I do everything fast. I pride myself on my efficiency and I raise two kids and two step kids. I wonder what it would have been like if I had this information when I was younger. But what it, what it boils down to now and the advice that I would give is when I say slow down, I don't mean while you're trying to get dinner ready and everything done. There's really two parts to this. It's can you create any type of space, and I know this is hard for women actually, like just ask somebody to do something, like grab your your husband or your kid. It's like if you can take 15 minutes, shut the door and go into your bedroom. And even what I'm guessing is if I had to do that in the midst of young kids and all the family activities and working, that it would be incredibly hard to slow down. And I would have to look at one of the videos that I created. I, I would need very specific, like, like these meditation type things that there's so much access to, lots of free things to look at where you're sort of not alone and you have a guiding voice that can give you some instructions. Yes. And I teach people to just begin with sensing the ground and I give prompts to keep you there. And then these deep belly breaths that I teach, if you do like six of them and I have instructions everywhere and my book and my website. Then at the end of that, to again, do this kind of body scan and just validate what's there. And what's probably going to be there is I can't slow down. My mind is going like crazy. I have all these things I have to do. Just to notice that and just to take two minutes to notice what that also feels like in the body. My heart is racing. My chest is tense. My back is tense. The mere act of noticing and doing this a little bit as much as you can, maybe it's only once a week, but that practice of letting your noticing brain reflect on your, your experiential world, that's what we put it, left brain, right brain, is going to do a lot of things. One, just taking the time for yourself is showing love to yourself, even if it's hard. Like if you take all the pressure off that anything is supposed to happen with any of it, just whatever happens, happens. It's like, I always write at the end of my blogs, A plus for trying. You know, it's this idea that there's no goal because we have such a goal-oriented society. But as you practice... I have sort of a whole curriculum, as you know, in the book, if you get through that that curriculum and you can work the change triangle, which is the tool that I use every day in my personal life, it's sort of having the map to look at, am I in a defensive mode? Am I in an anxious mode? Am I in contact with core emotions like sadness and anger and fear or disgust or joy or excitement or sexual excitement or love or all these things, just naming that and validating that. There's something that happens. It's like, we call it in AEDP, like a click of recognition. When you can put words on your experience, we sort of feel seen in this kind of deep way. And it we sort of drop down and we feel a little bit more grounded in ourselves. And just those little practices until your children grow up and you have some more time than, you know, until there is more time and trying to steal whatever time you can for yourself. Because ultimately, this is how I would rationalize it and how I uh, share it with my patients is we know intellectually that if if we are depleted and we are running on fumes and we don't take time for ourselves, our fuses are shorter, we're more irritable, we can't connect, we feel like crap. If you want to feel better, you have to make time for yourself and you either have to recruit neighbors to help. And if you start with 15 minutes, take a walk, slow down during that walk, look out, look at colors, listen to birds, and just try to work that triangle. Notice where you are, tune inside your body, take a few deep breaths. There's lots of different ways to do it. And just a a small practice, even if it's five minutes, it's better than nothing. Can you put some more explicit language around the change triangle? Because it really is a fantastic tool. And so can you explain that 
to the listeners who are not familiar with what that is? It's a map to becoming reconnected to your emotions. And it's an upside down triangle. The two top corners of the triangle, the, the, the flat side, the top, right? The point goes down. And if you sort of imagine that the change triangle is superimposed on your body, the top of the triangle kind of is above your shoulders, closer to your head, because that's where we live more. And the two corners are the defenses. That's the way we are avoiding emotions at any given moment. And it's not a bad thing. You know, we need to avoid emotions or at least not totally tune into them to get through life. But we do have to stop and the more you practice this this triangle, the more you can kind of simultaneously validate an emotion as you're going on with your day. Kind of the ultimate goal is to be able to feel your feelings, deal with your feelings, and relate and connect all at the same time. So at the bottom of this triangle are the core emotions that we're trying to get to because when you move through your core emotions, you get to this place that's on the bottom underneath the triangle that we all want to spend more and more time in, which is our calm, open-hearted state. It's a state that reflects scientifically a regulated nervous system. That's good. So we're not in fight or flight. We're not in agitation. We feel connected. We have the capacity to be curious in others, curious in ourselves, clarity of thought, all these C words, compassionate to ourselves and others. We tend to have more creative energy. We have more confidence because confidence is really a byproduct of being able to tolerate whatever you find inside yourself and then put it to good use, put it to constructive use. What do I need? What do I want to change to make my life better in the short term and in the long term? And so we rotate around the three corners of the triangle and the, the open-hearted space underneath it all throughout the day. And if we know where we are at any given moment, you know, if I'm in a highly guarded, blocked off state and all I can feel is my judgment and my, I hate everything and I just want to drink. If we know that again, and we don't beat ourselves up for it, we, we have a choice. We could say one, I know what my task is, is to get in touch with my emotions. And I know to do that, I'm going to have to do these steps to do that and I'll feel better. We also know that it's not the best time to have a conversation with a problem-solving strategy conversation with someone in our family or to talk to our children because we'll likely fly off the handle or withdraw. And either way, that's going to end up making the person on the other side feel badly. And so the awareness of where we are, like mindfulness meditation, I would say this is mindfulness meditation with a map. Because when we turn inside, I didn't know what to do with my feelings. So I just buried them and pushed them aside. Once I saw the map and someone told me what to do and demystified the whole process, I wasn't scared of myself as much anymore. And then once I practiced it, both with a therapist and on my own, I got less and less frightened of myself, more and more confident, more and more courageous to try new things in life that I could dare to put myself in social interactions where I might be embarrassed or shy, but I could deal with those feelings. I could deal with shame. I could deal with guilt. I could deal with my anger. And I could, again, make constructive use out of it to help my life and to help my relationships. So it's an invaluable tool. I'm hoping this will be taught in high school someday. It's like emotion education 101. That's how I see it. And there's none of it that no one's getting this stuff in school. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I was a grown adult before I heard any of this. Yeah. And even then it felt, it was so kind of woo-woo and on the margins of the conversation, I couldn't even figure out how to make sense of it. So you're right. This would have served us all well had we internalized more of this when we were developing and steering into young adulthood. Are you finding a high impact on your patients that you work with as they begin to put these tools into practice? No question, which is why I went from being a, a classically trained psychoanalyst to being a certified and AEDP therapist. And it's really the, it's a wonderful umbrella kind of way to, to integrate other methods into it because you can't have too many tools in your toolbox as a therapist because everyone's different and you really want to attune to the person, not make a person fit a mold. Yeah, And so it's so important because it gets the attachment piece on creating safety, right? We can't 
explore parts of us that we have never seen before in the moment if we don't feel safe to do that. Like we have to know that someone's going to be there for us if we feel like we get scared or we have to know someone's not going to judge us. And so, yes. In fact, the way the book happened is, I don't know, did you read that first article in the New York Times that was what called It's Not Always Depression, Sometimes It's Shame? And that was the first thing I ever wrote because I had I felt that I had something to say for the first time in my life because this method and the way that we were approaching people was getting passed around in a very small group of therapists and patients. And I didn't think that was right. I felt that it was a public health issue with anxiety and depression being rampant. And so I wrote this article never thinking it would get published and it did. And and then I was asked to write a book on it. And I was like, yeah, let me write a book on the triangle because not only was it helping my patients and all my colleagues' patients, we were sharing it. And now what's even more exciting is through now helping thousands of people through the book that I wrote for the public, not for therapists. It's thousands and thousands of people who are working the change triangle as a self-help tool and it's life-changing. I get letters every day. I bet you do. Yeah. It's the most thrilling thing that I can imagine because that's what I thought. I was like, this, maybe this is only me and a few other people, but I don't think so because you know, emotions, are they work universally in the of same course. way. Yes. What unites us all as humans is our emotions. We all feel frightened. We all want to feel happy. We all feel angry at times. And it's really about humanity. Mm. And it's very moving. It's so incredible. This is a wonderful offering to the world. I'm so pleased to get to share your work with my community. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. They have definitely been saving my life in 2020. Join us. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. It's no secret that 2020 won't win any prizes in my book, but there's something I absolutely love that came from last year. I released my first ever merchandise line, and it was all sort of in honor of my book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, which came out last April. Listen, it's small but mighty, but I bet you've seen some of it. We started with fierce hats and face masks, of course, and coffee mugs, Then we moved to hats, mugs, and shirts for the word free, specifically, super on the nose. And there's one really special item for me in the Gin Hatmaker Merge Collection. We have elephant coasters that say this, there is no community like a community of women. So here's the thing about elephants. You've heard me say this. Out in the wild, 
when a female elephant is vulnerable, she's either giving birth or she is injured, her fellow female elephants, her sisters, get in formation and surround her and protect her. Talk about the definition of fierce. I'll tell you that I lived that elephant story over and over and over again in this last year, thanks to my family, my friends, all of you. This is what we do, girls. When our sisters are vulnerable, when they are giving birth to new life or new ideas or new spaces, when they need their people to surround them so they can heal or recover, we get information. We close ranks and literally have each other's backs. This is how we show each other that we are fierce, free, and full of fire. So right now, you can find the elephant coasters and all the other fierce and free items at jenhatmaker.com slash shop. And hey, look alive. You can save 20% off the entire site with the code for the love. Yay. These are just beautiful words that held me last year, and I hope they hold you too. So one more time, that's jenhatmaker.com slash shop to save 20% today. Use the code for the love. All right, back to our show, guys. As we kind of wrap this up, I wanted to ask you just a couple of quick questions. These are questions that I'm asking everybody in the Reconnection series, and so you could just Top of your head, whatever comes to mind. Here's the first one. For you personally, what is your favorite way to connect with other people? Oh, just, I love one-on-one, just like we're doing a one-on-one conversation. Yeah. Me too. I would take that a hundred times out of a hundred. Yes, exactly. Uh Exactly. Okay. How about this? You may have already answered this, but you might have something else to add to it in the middle of your day or your, your activities, when you are noticing that you are feeling a little tight, that you are wired, that you are keyed up, that you're spiraling in some way, do you have any other ways that you just take a moment and reconnect with and care for yourself? Feet on ground, deep breaths. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I I mean, anytime that I notice anything that doesn't feel good inside, I slow down, which after 15 years of practicing this triangle, uh, yeah, yeah, I can sort of move and do it at the same time. But it's really what I notice more is instead of that immediate impulse to go up into my head, I now have retrained my brain. I go into my body. Oh, so good. Yeah. So I just focus in on whatever's bothering me like a receiver and I'm seeing how it shifts with the attention and I'm seeing what it's telling me about what's going on. I'm seeing what I need to feel a little bit better. And sometimes I can't process it through. And then I go resort to my list of what I call state changers or what are the ways we can immediately try to shift our state from something bad to something a little bit better. Like I love to take hot bubble baths because I have the smell of the bubble bath, the scalding hot water, and it's immediately a state changer. Picking up the phone to call a friend, that's a state changer. We know some of the unhealthy state changers like drugs and and alcohol, they work, but they're not a long-term strategy, right? So we have to always think on, you know, what can I use as a long-term strategy that's not going to harm me? Yeah, I love the idea of state changers. I write about that a lot and that I think everyone should like do trial and error. If you come up with a list of like five state changers and you write them down, put them on your refrigerator. And because when we're upset, it's very hard to think, just go and like try one and the next and the next. You're so right. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, those are simple and practical tools that make a really high impact. Yeah. Like exercise, like looking at nature, music, those things. That's it. That's my list. You've just listed it. Here's the last question. I actually ask every guest in every single series this question. And you can answer this however you want, Hillary. It can be serious and somber. It could be silly and absurd. It's complete. We've had every kind of answer. But here it is. What is saving your life right now? I have to say my husband. Oh, how nice to hear. Yeah. But it's a second marriage, just so people know. You know, divorced totally decimated my children, 10 years of figuring it out. But then, you know, I found a guy, like a kid with people who are like dating, to put on your dating profile, looking for someone with some emotion education, interest in self-growth. And, you know, I married this guy that's been, was in therapy for 15 years. So we could speak the same language and we process and, you know, he's, he gives me cuddles and hugs and soothing and comforting and, 
that's where it's at. Oh, I'm just so happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, it's rare. It's it's very nice. Before I let you go, can you just tell my listeners where they can find you, best places to connect with you, all of that? Yes. So I guess first and foremost, the website HillaryJacobsHendel.com or TheChangeTriangle.com, or you can Google The Change Triangle, is a free resource hub on emotion education. And then which you have to pay for the book, which is called It's Not Always Depression, but that's the full enchilada. And as you know, I wrote it to be as easy to read. So it's how to move from disconnected states through anxiety, guilt, and shame, which are usually the kind of intermediate states down into our core emotions and through them so that we connect to our authentic self. And the more we connect to our own self, the more we connect, better connect more intimately and deeply with other people. And then it ricochets back to help us connect more deeply with ourselves. And there's this beautiful upward spiral of connection and authentic relating and calming. And there's all these great ways and lots of things and tips and tools to be able to do that. Well, may it be the way that we begin to move through 2021. Yeah. It'll be a welcome change. Yes. And um, into the from future. what we've experienced and into yeah. the future. Yeah, thank without you. a loving future. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. very much for just keeping your foot on the gas of your work, first of all, of making it accessible, understandable, all the resources you've put out into the world, just a real service to us and our souls and bodies and in our relationships. And we will link to all of it, listeners. So don't feel like you couldn't write it down fast enough. We'll have every single link for you in the transcript. And I was just delighted to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the show today and just giving of your very precious time to our community. We're grateful. Oh, thank you. And I'm so grateful that you invited me here on your wonderful show. And your viewers or listeners are very lucky Ah, (laughs) that they have you. Thank Thank you so much. Okay. Helpful, helpful, helpful. As mentioned, we'll have everything linked for you at jimhatmaker.com. Okay, under the podcast tab. These are just fantastic tools. I think so many of us are looking for and needing as we do this really important work of reconnecting to our bodies, reconnecting to our emotions so that ultimately we can reconnect to each other. Thank you for joining me. This whole series is packed like this. Absolutely packed. We wanted to just put resource after resource in your hands as we steer into what hopefully feels like recovery and some redemption and rediscovery in our lives and in our families. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing these episodes on your socials. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing and rating the podcast. We're so grateful for this listening community. Just the tip top best. Okay, everybody. See you next week.